Every teacher in the world could do this tomorrow. You don't need permission, you know? You don't even need forgiveness, you know? What you have to have is a little bit of courage knowing that, you know, these kids are gonna really do interesting things and all of you are gonna learn together. Welcome to Learning Unboxed, a conversation about teaching, learning, and the future of work. I'm your host and chief goddess of the PASS Foundation, Annalise Corbin. We know the current model for education is obsolete. It was designed to create fleets of assembly line workers, not the thinkers and problem solvers needed today. We've seen the innovations that are possible within education, and it's our goal to leave the box behind and reimagine what education can look like in your own backyard. Welcome to today's episode of Learning Unboxed. As always, super excited because we get to have conversations with innovators in the world of education. And joining us today is globally recognized expert, Tony Wagner, who is currently a senior research fellow at the Learning Policy Institute founded by Linda Darling Hammond in 2015. And prior to this appointment, Tony held a variety of positions at Harvard University for more than 20 years, including a few years as an expert in residence at the Harvard Innovation Lab and the founder and co-director for more than a decade of the Change Leadership Group at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Tony um, can also um, add, if you will, uh, to that CV of his as previous experience, including high school teacher, K-8 principal, university professor in teacher education, and founding executive director of Educators for Social Responsibility. Tony also serves on a number of boards of several nonprofits, including the Mastery Transcript Consortium and Better World Ed. So, Tony, thank you for joining the program. My pleasure. Looking forward to the conversation. You know, um, it's interesting. And so for for folks that might not um, necessarily know, our listeners come to us from all over the world. But, uh, you know, I would assume that most people are aware or have bumped up against your books in particular if they haven't had the opportunity to hear you speak um, um, out in the world. Um, you know, but with titles like Most Likely to to Succeed, Preparing Kids for the Innovation Era, um, co-authored by Ted Dinnersmith, um, as, as well as Creating Innovators, um, and your new book, um, in particular, Learning by Heart. There's a lot out there for people to know about you. And Tony, all that sort of set aside, the thing that I'm most intrigued as an anthropologist, sort of working in the world of education, you know, as I constantly bump up um, with you and the work that you've done, is the question around why. Why are you so interested in the work that we are collectively engaged in? How do you explain that? Well, I tried to explain it uh, in my recent memoir, Learning by Heart. You know, I was a terrible student. I hated school. Not just some schools some of the time, but pretty much all school, <laughs> all of the time. Uh, I dropped out of high school in my senior year before eventually getting a degree. I was a two-time college dropout, the first time to go write the great American novel, and then the second time because I got very caught up in the 60s. And so the combination of my school experience and my 60s experience together ha have sort of steered me in the direction of, first of all, wanting to make a difference in the world, and second of all, believing very passionately that education does not mere, merely be need re reinforming reforming rather, but rather reinventing. 
And so that's only been underscored by all that I've been learning about changes in the world in the time that I've been working on this uh, field. You know, the, there's been such profound change in the kinds of skills kids need for work, for learning, and for citizenship. So all of that together, sort of, I guess, is a package that I can sort of claim some reference to. Yeah, and I think that so many folks, you know, can relate to that. You know, this whole notion that school just really just didn't work for them, didn't fit. Um, you know, maybe not everybody uh, dropped out, you know, in their senior year in high school. Um, but, you know, when you really sort of dig in, especially when I dig in with conversations with a lot of folks that are doing innovative things in the world of education, one of the things that seems to be a very similar or constant is the fact that what they experienced as kids really didn't work for them. And it becomes yeah. a sort of driving passion to do something different. You know, it's fascinating. I agree with you. The majority of the educators whom I have met who are truly committed to innovation are those who, for whatever set of reasons, uh, did not have a completely satisfying experience in school and, and want to make it better for the kids now. Mm -hmm. And I think that one of the other sort of similarities that I've seen in these conversations has really been around the way that folks think about what innovation could or should look like. And, and, and I guess really sort of foundational for me when I think about that, and I'd be super curious to sort of where you're thinking about that space, is that that, that foundational sort of question around innovation often seems to stem from the question of what is innovation versus innovation in action, that sort of hands-on opportunity for students to actually engage in the innovation as it's unfolding. Yeah. Well, the as you say, there's there's a lot of different kinds of reform efforts that translate into students doing projects, students doing inquiry, more active engagement. But I'm concerned with a, a more fundamental kind of change. I think all of those are means to an end. My view is that we need to transform our education system from one that is all about seat time served and credentials earned for seat time served to moving towards real genuine competencies or mastery. In fact, that's that's really the work of our new book. I'm working with two colleagues, uh, Ulrich Christensen and Sujatabat, on a new book, uh, the, the working title of which is Mastery, the Future of Learning in Schools and the Workplace. Mm -hmm. And I'm super excited to see that come out. The work that Past Foundation um, does for many, many years now, um, we spend a lot of time talking about mastery and working in schools, trying to encourage them to be mastery-based. And so it's a tough conversation, Tony. I don't know what your experiences have been, but but I, I firmly believe that mastery is one of the five foundational components of successful education, but it's one of the hardest things, I think, for educators, um, parents, schools, districts, you, the entire community surrounding, you know, an individual child in, in their educational journey to really grasp and understand. So I'm curious, how, how are you thinking about mastery and sort of getting the folks who desperately need to buy in to be there in the conversation with us all? Well, I think that's a critically important question. Uh, I think so much of the resistance simply comes from the fact that people have only known one education system for more than 100 years, since the development of the Carnegie unit in 1906. It's all we know. You know, Carnegie decreed this, the, 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 actually it was part of the National Education Foundation, then later the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching decreed that a Carnegie unit is how we're going to measure a credit in high school 
and a course hour is how we're going to met- measure credit in college. That's all people know. So I begin by, first of all, helping people try to understand what's at stake. You know, in my most recent search, I've come to understand that while the college employment rate is very high, there's only 4% who are unemployed, the underemployment rate, that is kids who have a four-year degree but are not earning a BA wage, that number is about 35%. And it's remained almost constant for 40 years. For 40 years, we have been graduating kids into the economy who can't find productive, meaningful work that pays a decent wage. And that becomes all the more severe when you understand that while their wages, total college graduate wages have gone up about 19% in 40 years, their college debt, you know, the, the costs of college have gone up 179%. So kids are in this terrible squeeze where they they can't find a decent paying job, a job that they want to keep and can grow in. On the one hand, and on the other hand, they're hard-pressed to even service the debt on their college loans. So that's the first half of the argument, that people need to understand really what's at stake here. We're graduating kids with no skills who can't find meaningful, productive work. Why? Because they're really... Uh, uh, now uh, having to compete against uh, skilled workers from all over the world. For most of the 20th century, we had the most highly skilled labor force in the world. Nobody was even close. And the end of World War II put us even further ahead with our production capability. But all that's changed in the last 50 years. So that and automation uh, are the two forces that are radically changing employment prospects for our kids. So you look at the the world of innovation and you say, okay, well, what do kids need not just to succeed, but to thrive? And over and over again, it it becomes increasingly clear that creative problem solvers are the folks who are going to get and keep the best jobs and are going to grow in their jobs and make meaningful contributions. And I don't just mean in technology, because creative problem solving is as important in health and education, environment, climate change, you name it. And all over the world, not obviously just in this country. So that's kind of a lot of what I help try to people try to help people understand. But then the other half is I remind people that competency-based education has been going on around us since the dawn of human history, and you only need look as far as scouting, Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, the merit badge approach to understand that competency-based learning is really the norm more often than time-based learning. You look at how do you become a pilot, a physician, a plumber, you have to demonstrate competence to get that license. And it doesn't matter the amount of seat time you serve. Same with driver's license. So if you take these two things, a sense of urgency, what's at stake for our kids and our collective future on the one hand. On the other hand, reminding people Look, this has been the norm going back to the Middle Ages and the guild system. This is how people have learned for many, many hundreds of years.
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It is. And it's really interesting because that's, it's a fascinating conversation when you get into some of the debate with folks around some of those sort of key components that you're talking about. I do want to backtrack just a little bit, Tony, and dig in um, to one of the things that you were talking about, in particular about the, the students that are going to college graduating from college and then finding themselves underemployed. And I get this question all the time. And so I just, I want to circle back around because I'm, it's curious to me that you you brought this forward. And I'm, I'm fascinated to sort of see what your perspective is on this. Because that question is one that I think that folks struggle to sort of reconcile, in part because I think there's this dichotomy that happens. Is this the case because these students are choosing things that they don't either have the aptitude for, they're choosing careers that aren't truly careers with potential, or is it because of the system on the backside that got them into college in the first place somehow didn't set them up to be successful in whatever the choice or chosen career or path that they chose for themselves? So I'm super curious what you think about that. Yeah, I think it's an important question because obviously the kids who choose uh, fields where there are very few jobs or jobs that pay very little art education or something like that uh, in the arts and drama and so on, or in, even in fields like social work or even education, uh, people are not going to earn a decent wage. So in a, in a sense, there's two real questions. One is self-fulfillment. Am I deliberately choosing a, a field of endeavor where I know I'm not going to earn a lot of money I certainly chose that as a teacher. Mm-hmm. But Me too, anthropologist. I, I, yeah. <laughs> and and at the same time, know that, you know, while I'm not going to earn a decent living or, you know, a great living, I'm going to be doing work that I consider meaningful and worthwhile and will enable me to grow. So that's certainly a part of this. But I think the larger part, uh, you know, I I have to give an example from my most recent writing, I just finished a chapter where I interviewed a 48-year-old single mom, Monique, who went, was an honor student in high school, had all these extracurriculars, went to a you know, good private university, Lutheran University in Ohio, did well, went into uh, AmeriCorps for a year afterwards, and then for the next 20 years, she was stuck in call center job after job after call center job, could not get out of the rut because she had no skills and didn't know what to do until finally uh, uh, she discovered this nonprofit called Perscolis that trains uh, particularly uh, kids from disadvantaged backgrounds with IT skills. And now she's got a job earning four or five times what she had before. But at the age of 48, she still has $97,000 worth of college debt. Wow. That's so, painful. you know, and what I find is that she's, she's not the exception. She's more the norm than not. And it's not her fault. She didn't choose some kind of, you know, she, her major was Spanish. She's bilingual, uh, spent a year studying in Spain, minor in math. So, you know, what's wrong with this picture? And it's certainly not something she did. 
Yeah. You know, and it's really interesting because, um, and Perscalis is one that we know very, very well um, right here locally with us. Um, so yeah. I love the fact that you're going to use use that as one of the vignettes in, in your in your work. So, you know, um, yeah. thank you for that because Perscalis is, is a truly amazing program. And to your point, um, you know, one of the things that happens is the vast majority of the participants that show up there have that same story or a very similar story and journey to Monique, right. which, which I think them begs the question as part of the conversation, if we can collectively make the decision, we're going to recognize all of these things that we're talking about right now here today as truths. Let's just for the moment say that they are in fact, and we can get the world on board with us. You know, I think that the big question that many, many folks have, especially um, whether they be state legislatures or, or, or community legislatures or some form of governance around the world, um, you know, in whatever you know, form that happens to take, are sitting back and thinking about, we have this intriguing moment, um, you know, on the heels of a global pandemic and a, a bit of a reawakening, if you will, um, of just the world recognizing that, you know, we were already not getting it right. Um, and we've just really brought a lot of the inequities um, and dysfunction to the forefront as a, and as a way to sort of try and cope and move through that period of time. And yet what we find is happening, or at least I'm, a lot of the things that I'm seeing happening is where there's a scramble around, well, let's, let's fix what's wrong through a legislative process or some type of governance-based process as the mechanism to sort of change that trajectory. And I would argue that while in some cases that can be super helpful, it's never going to be the thing that's going to change the paradigm for the actual students going through the system. So what would that conversation look like out in the world? Well, we top-down change, whether mandated by a state legislator or you know, a superintendent on a tear <laughs> with the latest kind of reform buzz in his head, <laughs> always fails always you can you can't name one significant improvement in education that has come about by that means having said that i think legislatures can do a great deal to free up educators to innovate how by stopping these ridiculous tests they're terrible waste of time terrible waste of resources imagine for a moment if instead of giving you know you know, a test to every kid every year or nearly every year. We instead said we're going to t an, assess a demographically representative sample of kids who use the more sophisticated assessments like from PISA and others. We're going to do it every three or four years. So we're going to have some systems accountability that way, not to penalize people, but rather to inform their work. Look at, look at the billions of dollars we would free up and the energy of educators that we would free up by that very simple step. So yeah, educators have some, I mean, legislators have something to contribute, but they don't know what it is. Or if they do, they're reluctant to give up the old paradigm of what I call accountability 1.0. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, that whole notion of this was good enough for me or this is what I know, right? It, it so often gets in our way. And I think yeah. that, you know, we collectively struggle to recognize that, you know, there, there are a number of different industries, for example, out there who have really, honestly, they've been mastery-based, as you pointed out, for a really long time. Um, they really work in a space where they, uh, they provide the opportunity for the case study work that's really necessary for students or 
for their learners to just really dig in and sort of embrace and engage in in, in pro- solving real world problems as opposed to a lot of made up stuff that students, you know, they can't figure out what any of it has to do with them. You know, I don't know what you're seeing, but certainly what we're seeing an awful lot of is, you know, rampant absenteeism. We lost a lot of students, especially our high school students whose families desperately needed them to find meaningful ways to contribute to the family income during the pandemic. So for example, we've got a number of students in one of our big urban areas here, um, high school kiddos who just didn't come back because they got jobs at the Amazon fulfillment warehouses, for example, right? So they got these jobs. They're making $16, $17 an hour. They couldn't figure out what school had to do with them to begin with. So sort of back to your own story, you know, why would I go back? And yet we know that those students not at least having the opportunity to earn the high school diploma that's a whole nother debate about the value of that. Um, But at the end of the day, it does sort of set the stage for possibilities moving forward. And yet there's no meaningful way to re-engage those students. No, I agree. I think we're losing a whole generation of kids. And then you've got the kids who are the in-school dropouts. Right. You know, who Mm -hmm. who show up, but, you know, scrape by with a D and they they graduate from high school perhaps, but with absolutely unemployable in terms of any kind of skill capability, unless they're fortunate enough to go to a, an academy-based high school where they they really are, have an opportunity to explore careers, have some interest in getting some kind of post-secondary education of some kind. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm also curious, Tony, so you've been at this for a long time. You've seen a lot of things. Have you bumped up against an innovation or innovations that you were you thought, wow, that that's a thing that if we could figure out how to pull it apart and, and apply it and give it, you know, local relevancy, that it would work in lots of places. Well, I, just again, drawing from research for our new book, um, it's not sort of a breakthrough innovation, but it's the really in-depth work that is being done in Kentucky now. So Jason Glass, the new states, first of all, Kentucky has 20 years or more of a, of a really solid history of attempting education reforms, more than actually going back close to 40 years when their state Supreme Court ruled their education system uh, totally inadequate and insisted that it be reinvented or reimagined. So they've been doing various iterations of that. The most recent of which though, where Jason Glass spent one year, the COVID year, doing a listening tour and going to places that where most people don't go to listen to a lot of folks who traditionally don't have a voice. And over and over again, he heard uh, families say, look, I want my kid to love learning and I want my kid to leave school with some skills. Really simple, simple prescription, isn't it? You would think. (laughs) So what, what a lot of folks are doing now, I think this has happened in more than a third of all the districts in the state, as well as in the statewide itself, is they're developing a profiles of a high school graduate. They're saying, all right, how has the the world changed? And given those changes, what are the skills? What are the dispositions? What is the core academic knowledge that all kids will need to thrive? And and then what's really important is they're taking this to the next step. So in in Louisville, Kentucky, one of the 30 largest school districts in the country, they developed a profile of a graduate, but then they put that profile in every student's hands and said, okay, we're going to ask you at the end of 12th grade, 8th grade, and 5th grade to do a defense of your learning. Will you stand and deliver? You present w- what, what you've been working on using your 
portfolio or whatever in relationship to this profile. So we're inviting you to self-assess and to talk about your growth up against these new standards. Now, I think that's wonderful, wonderful work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And we work with a number of schools where where they do some similar components um, to that. And if nothing else, I, I guess the thing that is so powerful to me is watching the kids own the next step. So, you know, they will stand there at fifth grade's perfect example of what's happening in Kentucky at fifth grade and say, here's where I am. Here's what I've learned. Here's what I think about the experiences that I've had. And suddenly they are now empowered for the next time they stand up and have that same conversation in the eighth grade. They have a completely different sense of ownership because you empowered them to take ownership. And you're really engaging teachers in a different kind of student preparation too, aren't you? Preparing kids for tests versus preparing kids to do a defensive learning is not something you can do once every three or four years, right? You have to do that in every class every every week. So mm-hmm. every day, uh, it, it, right? Yeah, exactly. So I think it is a it is a way to completely reorient the system. Yeah, a hundred percent. So I, you know, as we as we sort of think about the next iteration, and you know, one of the the things that that I particularly feel very very passionate about is as as our our schools or our communities are really starting to wrestle with a meaningful retooling of what the system looks like. I like to call it a radical recalibration that's desperately needed. Um, But whatever label you like to put on it, you know, one of the things that I think is super intriguing that folks are still really, really struggling with is the notion of really sort of breaking down those content barriers, right? The the idea that we have to go to math class and we have to go to social studies class and we have to, you know, and the list goes on and on and on. And part of it is because that's the way we've always, we've always done that. But you know, it's a tough conversation in communities around how we break down those artificial barriers because there's nothing real about that experience, not from a teaching perspective and certainly not from a learner's perspective. And from the employment perspective, back to your point earlier when we started the conversation, these kids are woefully unprepared to go and and, and perform meaningful work. So what do you do with that? Well, I, I, I th- we need to start with some sympathy for teachers because, again, they're teaching in the ways that they've been taught in a system where they don't know anything else. Everything has been discipline-based from their experience in middle school straightforward through college and beyond. They don't know anything else. So I think one of the first challenges is to incent innovation. I, I've suggested that every school, every school district, every state ought to have an innovation fund to which teams of teachers can apply. Why teams? Teams will iterate more quickly. They will be take more thoughtful risks and learn from mistakes more quickly. And they will also do research that will su- enable them to make many, many fewer mistakes. And if you say, okay, you create, in effect, a request for proposals from teams of teachers. You said, we want some interdisciplinary courses. We think, as Finland has done, we believe every student should have an interdisciplinary experience because that's how the adult world works. So you just do that. And then on the other hand, you you bring in speakers from the real world, the adult world. And, and, you know, folks in business will say to you, there is not a single problem that can be understood, let alone solved, 
within the constraints or silo of an individual academic discipline. That is not how the real world works. So I think these are the two things. On the one hand, the carrot. We want to encourage you to take some responsible risks. We want to encourage you to innovate, and we're going to help you form teams to do that. And on the other hand, you know, here's the overriding and compelling reason why. Kids, to be employable as creative problem solvers, need to understand how to use the tools in multiple disciplines to understand and solve complex problems. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, 100%. So as we sort of think about wrapping up the conversation, I always like to to sort of recognize that there are folks out there in the world that are listening to this and they're thinking, ah, well, I can do, I can do this in my classroom or I can do this in my community. But it's really, really tough to get started. And I think that one of the other things that often that folks sort of bump up against, just in my experience um, over the years, is it's it's not so much I don't know where to get started. Right, but I can't get beyond all the things or all the reasons why I think it's not possible. And I would argue that that's part of the underlying sort of issue as to why we haven't been able uh, to be innovative fast enough inside the world of education. So we get mired down in all the reasons why why we cannot um, do uh, whatever it is that we happen to be. So for example, right, I you know, have lots of conversations around, well, what would happen if you took your entire high school and you made it entirely um, place-based and work and work-based, you know, back to your point earlier, multiple industry stackable credentials, micro-credentialing, all of these sort of experiences that allowed students to grow to grow skills, very, very deliberate schools, skills, but you took them out of that traditional setting that quite frankly is so stifling. And the pushback that you get about that is, well, but then it's no longer school. So I'm Hmm. curious about your thoughts, you know, if somebody's thinking about, you know, trying in their community to be that sort of radical, if you will, in the way that they think about conversations, at least around teaching and learning, what would you say to them? Well, I I do think it's hard to present people with a model they've never seen. Uh, And so I I think my first piece of advice would be, you know, if you're really interested in doing this, first of all, don't try it alone. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Second of all, you know, so form a little committee and and, and call it an exploratory committee and then uh, research the schools that are already doing this. And there are some, mm-hmm. you know them. Oh yeah, there's some uh, great ones. And then once you discover them, you invite school board members and some of your teacher leaders to come along, get them to pay for the trip. But you know, you think of it as a, as a study experience where you're doing educational R&D, research and development. Look, we're a highly risk averse profession and our communities are embedded in, in really knowing only one kind of learning. So we have to expose them to what I call existence proofs or learning laboratories where these things are going on. You can't ask people to move to something they've never seen, smelled, touched, or tasted. You know, I used to take folks to High Tech High back when it was one of the few truly uh, innovative schools. Now there are many, many more. But they would always leave that school experience that's totally transformed. They cannot think about high school the same way if they've gone to high tech high. So I think that's that's where you, if you're trying to move to a completely new model, that's where to go. But I also believe there's a lot we can do without permission 
without forming a committee, one of the things that I advocate is that every teacher invite their students to keep a question journal. You know, curiosity is the wellspring of intrinsic motivation for learning. It's the wellspring of innovation, I've also discovered. So what if we had kids kind of write down the questions or problems that interest them in a journal on a regular basis, knowing, these kids knowing that they're going to sit down with a teacher periodically. And is going to give them classroom time say at the end of the semester for two weeks, to go do that kind of learning. Not for a grade, for credit, no credit, with the expectation that, that the kids or teams of kids will have to come back and share what they've learned with the rest of the class. No, you, you, every teacher in the world could do this tomorrow. You don't need permission, you know? You don't even need forgiveness, you know? <laughs> what you have to have is a little bit of courage knowing that, you know, these kids are going to really do interesting things and all of you are going to learn together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I love that very much. And, you know, thank you for, for, for that last little nugget, um, you know, for our conversation um, for folks, because it, it is one of those things. And I think that they really do struggle. And like you, I've taken um, any number of teachers and administrators and community folks to High Tech High and many other incredible places um, that we have, um, you know, the, the well, if you will, of those type of innovative programs and school experiences. It's growing and it's growing every day. And that's super exciting to me. Um, but again, I think that oftentimes we try to reinvent ourselves without looking to see what's also happening out in the outside world. What are others doing? And we spend an awful lot of time kind of reinventing the wheel, if you will. And it's, it's, it's not necessary because there are incredible innovations happening in education across the world right now today. We just need to grab them, take the parts that appeal to us and make them our own. And there's nothing wrong with that. Quite the contrary. Isolation is the enemy of improvement. Isolation is the enemy of innovation. There's a reason why the most innovative companies in the world are so profoundly team-based. It's because teams can end up creating much better results. And the one reason we've had so little innovation in education, I think, is that we teachers are so, and educators at every level are so profoundly isolated. Mm. I think that's a, that you're absolutely spot on. So thank you for that. I also want to thank you, Tony, for making time out of your day to join us um, in this conversation, um, to be um, a, a, a part of the work uh, that we're all collectively doing. So thank you for, for making time for us today. Oh, it's been a pleasure. It's been a very enjoyable conversation. Thank you for your great questions. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for Learning Unboxed, a conversation about teaching, learning, and the future of work. I want to thank my guests and encourage you all to be part of the conversation. Meet me on social media at Annalise Corbin and join me next time as we stand up, step back, and lean in to reimagine education.